Hey all you spooky listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. guys thanks for tuning in to episode number six this is going to be about the alien abduction of barney and betty hill in 1961 yes i did say aliens this is going to be our paranormal break from the other cases that we cover here at morbid curiosity so let's jump right into it i'll go ahead and name the sources that i pulled information from of course we use wikipedia.org we're so thankful for them because they are very detailed um, and the other source would be the blackfault.com. The full URL for the information that was pulled, especially for the photos, um, is on Instagram on our post for this episode. So go make sure you check that out. It is really awesome. Um, it has studies that were done on Betty Hill's dress that she had on when she was abducted. So very good information. Let's get started. Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial American couple who claimed that they were abducted by aliens in New Hampshire in 1961 from September the 19th to the 20th. It was the first widely publicized report of an alien abduction ever in the U.S. The incident was called the Hill Abduction or Zeta Reticuli Incident. Their story was adapted into the best-selling 1966 book, The Interrupted Journey, and the 1975 television film, The UFO Incident. In recent years, there were plans announced for a movie and TV series based on their incident, although as of this year, 2022, nothing has been produced. Most of Betty Hill's notes, tapes, and other items have been placed in a permanent collection at the University of New Hampshire her alma mater. In July 2011, the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources marked the site of the alleged craft's first approach with a historical marker. Let's go into some background of our couple here. So the Hills lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney, born in 1922, deceased in 1969, was employed by the U.S. Postal Service, while Betty, born 1919 and deceased 2004, was a social worker. Active in the local Unitarian congregation, the Hills were also members of the NAACP and community leaders, and Barney sat on the local board of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So the UFO encounter, according to a variety of reports given by the Hills, the alleged UFO sighting happened around 10.15 p.m. on September 19, 1961. The Hills were driving back home to Portsmouth from a vacation in Nigeria Falls and Montreal. 
Just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty claimed to have observed a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and planet Jupiter upward to the west of the moon. While Barney navigated U.S. Route 3, Betty reasoned that she was observing a falling star, only it moved upward. Because it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter, Betty urged Barney to stop the car for a closer look, as well as to walk their little Dutch and dog, Delphi, which you can see on Instagram. He's so cute. So Barney stopped at a picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Betty was looking through a pair of binoculars and observed an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights traveling across the face of the moon. Because her sister had revealed to her earlier in the years that she had seen a flying saucer, Betty thought it might also be what she was seeing. Barney then observed it through the binoculars as what he reasoned was a commercial airliner traveling toward Vermont on its way to Montreal. However, he soon changed his mind because without looking as if it had turned, the craft rapidly descended into his direction. This observation caused Barney to realize that this object was not a plane. They quickly returned to the car and drove toward Franconia Notch, a narrow mountainous stretch of road. The hills said they continued driving on an isolated road, moving very slowly, trying to still keep the object in view. Um, at one point, the object passed above a restaurant and signal tower on top of the Cannon Mountain and came out near the old man of the mountain. Betty testified that it was at least half times the length of the granite cliff profile, which was about 40 feet long, and that it seemed to be rotating. The couple watched the silent, illuminated craft move erratically, and it bounced back and forth in the night sky. About one mile south of Indian Head, they said the object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. The huge, silent craft hovered about 80 to 100 feet above their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air and filled the entire view of the windshield. Carrying his pistol in his pocket, he stepped away from the vehicle and moved closer to the object. Using the binoculars, Barney claimed to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's windows, seeming to look at him. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. The one remaining figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be bat wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. It approached to what Bonnie estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away from him. Now, on October 21st, 1961, Barney reported the incident to National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which is also known as NICAP. The investigator, Walter Webb, said the beings were somehow not human. Barney had ripped the binoculars away from his eyes and ran back to his car. In a near hysterical state, he told Betty, they're going to capture us. 
he saw the object again shift its location to directly above the vehicle. He drove away as fast as he could, telling Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up. Almost immediately, the hills heard a rhythmic series of beeping or buzzing sounds, which they said seemed to bounce off the trunk of their vehicle. The car vibrated and a tingling sensation passed through both of their bodies. The Hills said that they experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled. A second series of beeping or buzzing sounds returned the couple to full consciousness. They found that they had traveled nearly 35 miles south but had only vague and spotty memories of the section of the road that they traveled down. They recalled making a sudden, sharp, unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the middle of the road. They arrived home at about dawn. The hill said that they had some odd sensations and impulses that they could not explain. Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of their home. Their watches never worked again. Barney said that the leather strap from the binoculars was actually torn, although neither one of them recalled tearing it. The toes of his best dress shoes were scraped. Barney said he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. They took long showers to remove possible contamination and each drew a picture of what they had observed. Confused, the Hills say they tried to reconstruct the order of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home. But immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete and fragmented. After sleeping for hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothes she had worn during the drive into her closet. Observing that the dress was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining, which you can see on Instagram. Make sure you go check it out on Instagram. We do have photos of the dress that we found. Later, when she retrieved the items from her closet, she noticed a pink powder on her dress. She hung the clothes on a clothesline and the powder blew away, but it did leave stains. Betty did not notice an odor on the dress, so it was, you know, odorless. Um, left stains on her dress. Other damage was also noted to the dress, which is also in some of the photos you can find on Instagram. The lining on the right side of the dress was torn from the waist to the hem, and the top of the zipper was ripped. Because of the damage to the dress, it could never be worn again. She threw it away, changed her mind, retrieved the dress, and hung it in her closet, where it hung for 40 years. It had not been enclosed in a protective bag, mind you. No disinfectants, moth repellent, or other chemicals were ever sprayed in the closet during its time in there. Occasionally, the dress would be taken out to be shown to visitors. Over the years, five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analysis on her dress. Barney immediately had his suit cleaned after the event, and it never developed a pink powder, nor was it discolored. There was no damage to his clothing. There, there was like a shiny, um, constant, like little circles on the car's trunk um, that had not been there the previous day. And Betty and Barney experimented with a compass for those spots, noting that when they got close to the spots on the trunk, the needle would just go crazy. And then when they move away from the spots, it would just, you know, return to normal. 
The initial report to the U.S. Air Force and NICAP was September 21st. Betty had actually called the Air Force base to report their UFO counter. She was scared that they, of course, would label them as crazy or eccentric, so she withheld some details. On September 22nd, the next day, Major Paul Henderson telephoned the Hills for more information about the abduction. Henderson's report dated September 26th determined that the Hills had probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. This was later changed to optical condition, inversion, and insufficient data. Report 100-1-61, Air Intelligence Information Record. His report was forwarded to the Project Blue Book, which is the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project. Within days of the encounter, Betty borrowed a UFO book from a local library. It had been written by retired Marine Corps Major Donald E. Keough, who was also, nonetheless, the head of the NICAP, a civilian UFO research group. On September 26th, she wrote to him. She told him the entire story, including the details about the humanoid figures that Barney had observed through the binoculars. She wrote that her and Barney were considering hypnosis to help recall what happened to them. Her letter was eventually passed on to Walter Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. He met with the Hills on October 21st, 1961. They had a six-hour interview, which is crazy, um, six-hour interview, and they told him everything that they could remember from the UFO encounter. Now, Barney stated that he had developed some kind of mental block and that he suspected there was maybe portions of the event he did not wish to remember. He described in details all of what he could remember about the craft and the appearance of the humanoid figures, which were somehow not human, um, that were aborted. Now, Webb stated that they were telling the truth and that the incident probably occurred exactly as reported except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated and any such observations for human judgment is involved. So that means exact time, the length of visibility, apparent sizes of objects and occupations, distance, height of an object, etc. So they did have vivid dreams reported by each of the um, couple, right? So Betty and Barney had vivid dreams after being abducted by the UFO. So 10 days after the alleged abduction encounter, Betty began having a series of vivid dreams. They continued for five nights and she was never able to really recall any detail. Um, and after the five nights, they never returned. They, you know, like she just stopped having them. She told Barney about it, but he was like not too concerned and they dropped it. They never spoke about it again. Um, now, she did say um, some of the details of her dreams. She started writing down. So November 1961, she started writing down the details of her dreams. So in one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness and then struggled to regain it. Then she realized that she was being forced by two small two small men, excuse me, to walk in a forest at nighttime. And Barney was right behind her walking. Though she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men, she said, stood about maybe five feet to maybe five feet four inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms with a cap similar to military cadets. 
They appeared nearly human. They had black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and bullish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. Uh, in the dreams, Betty and Barney and the men walked up a ramp into a dish-shaped craft. Um, once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. She protested against it, but they told her it would take longer to examine them together. Um, so, you know, she and Barney were then taken to separate rooms. She dreamed that a new man, similar to the others, entered into her room to conduct her exam uh, with the leader. Betty called this man, the, the new man, the examiner, and said that he had a pleasant, calm manner. Though the leader um, and the examiner spoke to her in English, the examiner's command of language seemed imperfect and she had difficulty understanding him. The examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. He seated her on a chair and a bright light was shown above her. The man cut off a lock of her hair. He examined her eyes, her ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings of her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled a cellophane, like a little disc thing, I guess. Um, he then tested her nervous system and he thrust the needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain, she said, whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. The examiner left her room and Betty engaged in conversation with the, quote, leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked from where they came, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. In Betty's dream account, the man began escorting the hills from the ship when a disagreement broke out. The leader then informed Betty that she couldn't keep the book, stating that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. She and Barney were then taken back to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. They did so, then resumed their drive. So, unfortunately, Barney's nightmares were never described in detail, so I don't have any of his reports for dreams. Um, so, we'll move on to some medical help that they received and some studies that were done. So, November 25th, 1961, the Hills were again interviewed at length by NICAP members. Um, this time, it was C.D. Jackson and Robert E. Homan. Having read the first initial report by Webb, uh, they definitely had some questions for the Hills. Uh, one of the main questions was the length of the trip. Uh, so, although the Hills noted that they arrived home later than anticipated, the 178-mile drive should have taken about four hours. They did not realize that they had arrived home seven hours after their departure from Colebrook. When Homan and Jackson brought this up to the Hills, they had no explanation. The Hills claimed to recall almost nothing of that 35-mile of the U.S. Route 3 between Lincoln, Indian Head, and Ashland. Both claimed to recall an image of a fiery orb sitting on the ground. Uh, Betty and Barney reasoned that it may have been the moon, but Homan and Jackson informed them the moon set earlier in the evening. 
Now, the subject of hypnosis came back up again, and it was decided that it should be carried out in order to recover their memory. Uh, Barney was kind of against it, um, but thought it might help Betty put to rest what Barney described as the nonsense about her dreams. Um, by February 1962, they were making frequent trips uh, to the White Mountains. They were revisiting the scenes, hoping that, you know, maybe it may spark a memory. They were, of course, unsuccessful trying to find the site where the orb was in the road. Um, however, they were able to eliminate several possible routes, and they found what they claimed was the capture site on Labor Day weekend in 1965. If I'm not mistaken, they do have a road marker there for that now. So I believe um, you can find that on Google. And I did post it on our Instagram page as well. So after hypnosis was brought up again on November 23rd, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at their church where there was a guest speaker who was Captain Ben Sweat of the U.S. Air Force. Having had an interest in hypnosis, the Hills approached him privately, told them about the strange encounter, and asked them to, or asked him to possibly hypnotize them to recover their memories. But he declined, told them not to use an amateur hypnotist, um, you know, but he was interested in the missing time portion of their account, which was that 35-mile drive that they don't really remember. Um, March 3rd of 1963, they first publicly discussed the UFO encounter with a group at their church. On September 7th, 1963, Captain Sweat returns. He gave a formal lecture on hypnosis. Um, and after the lecture, the Hills told him that Barney was going to go see a, a psychiatrist, um, Mr. Stevens. So Captain Sweat suggested that Barney ask Stevens about the use of hypnosis in his case. So whenever Barney next met with him, he asked him about hypnosis. Stevens referred the Hills to Benjamin Simon of Boston. On November 3rd, 1963, the Hills spoke before an amateur UFO study group, the two-state UFO study group in Quincy Center, Massachusetts. Uh, the Hills first met Simon on December 14th, 1963, and early in their discussions, Simon determined that the UFO counter was causing Barney far more worry and anxiety than he was willing to admit. Though Simon dismissed the popular um, alien hypnosis as impossible, it seemed obvious to him that the Hills genuinely thought they had witnessed a UFO with human-like occupants and Simon hoped to uncover more about their experience through hypnosis. So Simon's hypnosis sessions began January 4th, 1964 and ended June 6th, 1964. He hypnotized Betty and Barney several times and also he done that separately so that they could not overhear one another's recollections. At the end of each session, he reinstated amnesia. Now, Barney was hypnotized first. His recall of witnessing non-human figures was quite emotional, punctuated with expressions of fear, emotional outbursts, and the state of being unwilling or unable to believe something. Barney said that due to his fear, he kept his eyes closed for most of the abduction and physical examinations. Based on these early responses, Simon told Barney that he could that he would not remember the hypnosis sessions until he was certain he could remember them without being further traumatized. Under hypnosis, 
Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. He eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled and three men approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them. He was still anxious, however, and he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. While hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's hypnotic um, recollection. Not her dream, but when she was hypnotized. The beings often stared into his eyes, said Barney, with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. Under hypnosis, Barney said things like, oh, those eyes, they're in my brain. That was from his first session and was also stated saying, I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. That was his second session. And the third one was, all I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. End quote. Barney uh, related that he and Betty were taken onto the disc-shaped craft where they were separated. He was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small exam table. Barney's narrative of the exam was kind of fragmented. He continued to keep his eyes closed for most of the exam. A cup-like device was placed over his genitals. He did not experience an orgasm, as uh, what Barney said, although they did collect a sperm sample. Um, the men scraped his skin, peered into his eyes and his mouth. A tube or cylinder was inserted into his anus and quickly removed. Someone felt his spine and seemed to be counting his vertebrae. While Betty reported a conversation with the, quote, leader in English, Barney said that he heard them speaking in a mumbling language that he did not understand. Betty also mentioned this detail the few times they communicated with him. Barney said it seemed to be thought transfers, so like telepathy. Um, both Betty and Barney stated that they hadn't observed the being's mouth moving when they communicated in English with them. He recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to the car in a daze he watched the ship leave. Barney remembered a light appearing on the road and he said, oh no, not again. He recalled Betty's speculation that the light might have been the moon, though the moon had set several hours earlier. He also stated that he attempted to produce the code-like buzzing sounds which seemed to strike the car's trunk a second time by driving from side to side and stopping and starting the vehicle. His attempt was unsuccessful. Now, Betty's session, um, Betty's account was similar to her five dreams about the UFO abduction that we covered earlier with some notable differences, mainly pertaining to her capture and release. Also, the technology on the craft was different, and the short men differed significantly in a physical appearance, and the sequential order of the abduction differated. The fuck? What the fuck's that mean? So, now Betty's session, her account was similar to her five dreams that she had about the UFO abduction with some notable differences, uh, mainly pertaining to her capture and release. Also, the technology on the craft was different, 
The short men's physical appearance was also different, and the order of abduction differed. Uh, Barney's and Betty's memories in hypnotic regression were, however, consistent with one another. Betty exhibited considerable emotional distress when recounting her capture and examination. Simon ended one session early because tears were flowing down her cheeks. Simon gave Betty the post-hypnotic suggestion that she could sketch a copy of the, quote, star map that she later described as a three-dimensional projection similar to a hologram. Though the map she saw had many stars, she drew only the ones that stood out in her memory. Her map consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. That is also posted on Instagram. Go check it out. She said she was told the stars connected by solid lines formed, quote, trade routes, whereas dash lines were to less traveled stars. Now, Simon's conclusions, after the hypnosis sessions, he speculated that Barney's recollection of the UFO encounter was possibly a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. Simon thought it was the most reasonable and consistent explanation. Barney rejected this idea, noting that while their memories were consistent in some regards, there were also portions of both of their narratives that were unique to each of them. Barney was now ready to accept that they had been abducted by the occupants of a UFO, though he never embraced it full, like as fully as Betty did. Um, though the Hills and Simon disagreed about the case of their distress, they all concurred that the hypnosis sessions were effective. The Hills were no longer tormented by the abduction anxiety. When the series of the hypnosis sessions were complete, Simon wrote an article about the Hills for the journal Psychiatric Opinion, explaining his conclusion that the case was a singular psychological aberration. So there was another interesting article that I found wrote by Allison Klang um, on outdoors.org. I'm going to read verbatim of a section of her article. Um, so through months of sessions and hypnosis, a popular technique at the time, the couple began to recall what happened to them. According to the Hills, the UFO had landed on their car as they were speeding down the mountains and put them to sleep. Afterwards, the gray beings they had seen earlier led them up a long ramp into the spacecraft. Once inside, the Hills were separated and individually tested. They were asked to climb on a metal table and remove their clothes where the gray beings would pluck their hairs, take clippings from their nails, and peel off parts of their skin. Each sample was placed on something that resembled a glass slide. The gray beings also probed needles into their arms, legs, and heads. Betty recalled that one needle was even inserted into her stomach as a pregnancy test. Throughout the ordeal, Betty and Barney claimed that one of the beings was the, quote, leader, who was observing the process from the side. Later alone with the leader, Betty asked where the craft had flown. Under hypnosis, she replicated the star map shown to her on the ship by the leader. Years later, a woman named Majory Fish attempted to interpret Betty's reproduction of the map and concluded that the beings had come from the star system uh, Zeta Reticuli. Though the story of Betty and Barney Hill was not the first tale of alien abduction, theirs was the most well-documented and feasibly legitimate. After the encounter, Betty Hill continued doing research on UFOs for the remainder of her life. 
And the story of the Hills became one of the most widely publicized alien encounters in history. It even shaped the way alien encounters are discussed today in media. Before the Hills experience, aliens were portrayed as friendly creatures who would communicate back and forth between Earth and their home planets. However, after the Hills shared their story, alien abductions became better known for their mystery and intrigue. Alien movies and sci-fi novels like The X-Files started to include common tropes, uh, such as medical examinations and missing time. Although the Hills have both since passed away, their legacy and the events that occurred in the White Mountains in 1961 have never been forgotten. So after the hypnosis sessions, the Hills went back to their regular lives. They were willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounters with their friends, their family, and the occasional UFO researcher, but the Hills apparently made no effort to seek publicity. On October 25, 1965, a front-page story in the Boston Traveler asked, quote, UFO chiller, did they seize couple? End quote. Reporter John H. Luttrell of the Traveler had allegedly been given an audio tape recording of the lecture the Hills made in Quincy Center in 63. Luttrell learned that the Hills had undergone hypnosis with Simon. He also obtained notes from the confidential interviews the Hills had given to the UFO investor, investigators. Excuse me. Um, on October 26th, the United Press International picked up Luttrell's story and the Hills earned international attention. In 1966, writer John G. Fuller secured the cooperation of the Hills and Simon and wrote the famous book, The Interrupted Journey, uh, about the case. The book included a copy of Betty's sketch of the star map. The book was a quick success and went through several printings. Uh, Barney, unfortunately, died of a cerebral hemorrhage, excuse me, I can't speak no more, Cerebral hemorrhage on February 25th, 1969 at age 46, whereas Betty went on to become a celebrity in the UFO community. She died of cancer on October 17th, 2004 at the age of 85, never having remarried. So analyzing the star map, um, going back to Marjorie Fish, I don't know why I keep saying Marjorie, guys, I'm sorry, Marjorie Fish of Oak Harbor in 1968. Um, so she read the Fuller's book, uh, the one that I just mentioned, Interrupted Journey. So Fish was an elementary school teacher and an amateur astronomer. Um, she was intrigued by the star map. So she wondered if it might be um, deciphered to determine which star system the UFO came from. So assuming that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun, Fish constructed a three-dimensional model of a nearby sun-like stars. So that means stars deemed to have characteristics uh, that could support life, such as found on Earth, right? So using thread and beads, basing stellar distances on those published in the 1969 Glee Star Catalog, Studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the map was from a viewpoint of the double star system, which we mentioned twice already, which was about 39 light years away from Earth. Uh, Fish sent her analysis to Webb. Agreeing with her conclusions, Webb sent the map to Terrence Dickinson, 
editor of the magazine Astronomy. Dickinson did not endorse Fish and Webb's conclusions, but for the first time in the journal's history, Astronomy invited comments and debate on a UFO report, starting with an opening article in the December 1974 issue. For about a year afterward, the opinions page of Astronomy carried arguments for and against Fish's star map. Notable was an argument made by Carl Sagan and Stephen Stoder, uh, arguing that the star map was little more than a random alignment of chance points. In an episode of Cosmos in 1980, Sagan demonstrated that without the lines drawn in the map, the hill map bore no resemblance to real-life map. In contrast, those more favorable to the map, such as David Saunders, a statistician who um, had been on the Condon, excuse me, Condon UFO study, disagreed. Saunders claimed that a match among 16 stars of the specific spectral type among the thousand stars nearest the sun is, quote, at least a thousand to one against, end quote. In the early 1990s, the European hippocampus Hippocrose, which is like high precision parallax collecting satellite mission, which measured the distance to be more than 100,000 stars around the sun more accurately than ever before, showed that some of the stars in Fish's interpretation of the map were in fact much um, further away than previously thought. Other research revealed that some stars counted by Fish as likely to host life would have been to be excluded by her own criteria, while some other stars which had been discounted by Fish have been recognized as potential abodes for life. Results such as these led Fish herself to reject her um, hypothesis in the public statement. So, the book... Uh, we'll go to that. So, 1966 publication of Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller detailed much of their claims. Excerpts of the book were published in Look Magazine, and the book went on to sell many, many copies and greatly publicized the Hill's account. Now, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience by Betty Hill's niece and the founder of the Mutual UFO Network, her name, Kathleen Mardine, further explored Fuller's themes along with the scientist Staten Fradman. Mardine knew Betty well and had spoken with her at great length about the encounter. She examined the historical records and scientific reports pertaining to the case and transcribed the Hill's hypnosis sessions with Benjamin Simon for her detailed comparative analysis. All right, so some things to add. This is... Um, like rebuting the hills so like psy psychiatrists later suggested that the supposed abduction was a hallucination brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the early 60s now if you guys haven't already seen instagram betty is white and her husband barney is an african-american man now betty discounted this suggestion noting that her relationship with barney was happy and their interracial marriage, guess what, caused no notable problems with their friends or families and had no problems um, and, you know, was noted in the interruption journey by Simon. Uh, he also said that their marital status had nothing to do with the UFO counter. 
Uh, Jim McDonald, a resident of the area in which the Hills claim to have been abducted, has produced a detailed analysis of their journey, which concludes the episode uh, was provoked by their misperceiving an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain as a UFO. Now, McDonald notes that from the road the Hills took, the beacon appears and disappears at exactly the same time the Hills described the UFO as appearing and disappearing. The remainder of the experience is ascribed to stress, sleep deprivation, and false memories, quote, recovered under hypnosis. After reading McDonald's recreation, UFO expert Robert Schaefer writes that the Hills are the, quote, poster children for not driving when sleep deprived. McDonald's article focuses primarily on the Hill's observations of the light in the sky and the timing of the journey, um, discounting the Hill's accounts of close encounters south of the Cannon Mountain as recovered memories. So Robert Schaefer actually wrote, quote, I was present at the National UFO Conference in New York City in 1980, at which Betty was also present and presented some of the UFO photos she had taken. She showed what must have been far more than 200 slides, mostly of blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background. These were supposed to be UFOs coming in, chasing her car, landing, etc. After her talk had exceeded about twice its allotted time, Betty was literally jeering off the stage by what had been at first a sympathetic audience. This incident, witnessed by many of the UFOlogy leaders and top activists, removed any lingering doubts about Betty's credibility. She had none. In 1995, Betty Hill wrote a self-published book called A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. It is filed with delusional stories such as seeing entire squadrons of UFOs in flight and a truck levitating above the freeway. Schaefer later wrote that as late as 1977, Betty Hill would go on UFO vigils at least three times a week. One evening, she was joined by UFO enthusiast John Oswald. When asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald stated, quote, She is not really seeing UFOs, but she is calling them that, end quote. On the night they went out together, Miss Hill was unable to dis distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. In a later interview, Schaefer recounts that Betty Hill wrote, quote, UFOs are a new science, and our science cannot explain them. Robert Schaefer relief, released excuse me, 48 pages of archived documents relating to Betty and Barney Hill, Benjamin Simon, and Philip P. Kloss on the internet on December 23rd, 2015. So, yeah, so that's all we have for the Hills abduction case. Um, just a few fun facts about the whole thing. Uh, so, in popular culture, Barney Hill was actually on an episode of To Tell the Truth. Um, the episode air date was December 12th, 1966. The couple was portrayed by James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons in the 1975 TV film adapted by S.L. Excuse me, S. Lee Pogaston. That's my dyslexia coming in. 
um, the UFO incident. And by Basil Wallace and Lee Garlington in 1996 TV series Dark Skies. And in 2018, the story formed the basis of The Dinner Party, a virtual reality exhibit at the traveling art show Wonder Spaces. Uh, Betty and Barney have been the topic of many podcasts over the years. Uh, nonfiction TV programs have discussed the encounter. Um, so, like, some of them have been, like, the 12th episode of Carl Sagan's Ministries Cosmosis. Encyclopedia Galactica, that is a mouthful. Um, another one is an episode of the Travel Channel series, Mystery, Mysteries at the Museum. Uh, fictional depictions include details of the case were used in the X-File episode from Outer Space. Uh, the graphic novel Saucer Country 2012 by Paul Cornell. Elements of the Hill abduction were used in American Horror Story, Season Asylum, and Death Valley. I love that show. Um, the ninth episode of the 2019 History Channel series, uh, Project Blue Book, entitled Abduction. And the song Bug in the Net, the tenth track on the Swedish death metal band Hypocrisy's 2001 album, Worship. Uh Never heard it, but I may have to look it up. Now, if you guys really want to get into a rabbit hole, you're more than welcome to go ahead and go to Google and start that because the government, I don't know if everybody knows or not, um, has released uh, confidential documents and videos and audio of their UFO encounters, um, whether it be through the Air Force or other parts of them, like... They have some. Uh, they have some documentation released um, from our government, not from someone who says they were abducted, but from the government. Whether y'all want to trust them or not, it's up to you. I'm not really political in that way, so. Um, but yeah, go make your own conclusions. Go check it out and tell me what you guys think. Send me an email. But yeah. So that's all for today's episode, guys. Tune in next week for another riveting case. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my Instagram at morbid period curiosity period TC podcast for photos related to each case covered. Feel free to email me case suggestions as well at morbid curiosity TC podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify and Apple podcasts. I appreciate all you spooky listeners. Stay kind, stay spooky, and don't murder anyone.